I don't know if you've heard, uh, but I hear the Cowboys are playing the opening game of the NFL season this year against the Buccaneers Thursday, September 9th at 7.20 p.m. I don't know if anybody else is aware of that. I'll admit I'm ready to watch some football. It feels like it's a little too long between the Super Bowl in February and getting it started back up. I was watching a documentary this week that's actually kind of tracking with the Cowboys in their preseason this very year and uh, looking at some clips of running back Ezekiel Elliott. And uh, you know this thing he does when he gets a first down? Uh, if you've watched any of the games, you've seen him do that. I always wondered, what, what's he doing? And uh, come to find out, I think, he's, he's saying, feed me. The idea being, I, am, I got a first down, but I want more yards for my team. Uh, feed me more yards. Uh, and I'm going to transition from that to talk about uh, what I've discovered uh, as I've been preaching through John this time. And I've read John many times before, but I don't think it quite struck me. How central a theme to Jesus' teachings in John is the idea of hunger and thirst. It's with the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. Um, and over and over, Jesus is, it's, it's with the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. And Jesus talking about being the bread of life and living water. And over and over, there's this theme in John that hits the idea that there is some profound need in us. And that he has come to address that. So we're going to be talking today, we're going to be looking at Jesus and how he, he says he can address our thirst. I have titled today's message, For Any Who Are Thirsty, and you might have noticed the theme in the songs I chose for today. We're in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. Let's start with verse 37. Now on the last, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, he must come to me and drink. We don't know, uh, well, let me say a little bit about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and how it was celebrated in Jesus' day. When the temple was still standing, uh, they, this was a seven-day feast, and there was actually an eighth day at the end of the conclusion of the Feast of Booths that was set aside for taking down the, the booth in an attitude of celebration and, and gratitude and uh, presenting sacrifices on that eighth day. So, and in some people's minds, the feast was, was eight days, and the last day would have been that eighth day. Uh, but if you were being technical about it, the Feast of Booths was the seven days, so the last day would have been the seventh day. John doesn't clear up for us which of those two days, the seventh or the eighth, we're talking about here. But perhaps the seventh day, because here's what they did during the Feast of Booths in the first century. Uh, in addition to building booths and remembering the fact that God sustained Israel for 40 years in the wilderness and fed them and gave them water and gave them everything they needed to survive for 40 years, uh, they, they're remembering their deliverance and God's provision. So it was no... Uh, coincidence that this feast was celebrated at the end of the ingathering of the harvest. So uh, they had a feast at the beginning of the 
gathering of the harvest, Pentecost, and then at the end of the end gathering, once they'd finished gathering in the last of their crops, they would come before God and thank him for providing. They would build booths and remember the days when their ancestors were living in booths and tents in the wilderness and God was providing for them. And what they did in the first century is every day they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and they would bring it and pour it out at the feet of the altar in the temple. They would do this all seven days. And on the seventh day, they would do things having to do with water and lights. So in this passage and on into chapter 8, Jesus is going to be talking about water and light. And uh, so I think maybe we're, we're this last great day of the feast maybe was that seventh day where you had both of those things going on. And it, it goes in with, with the things Jesus starts talking about. But he stands and cries out. Another thing that struck me uh, going through John is how many times he tells us that Jesus isn't just talking. He's yelling. He is crying out. He is shouting it to the four winds. And to me, reading that, it's the, it's the equivalent if we were texting, if you used all caps. He is not simply saying this. He is crying out and saying, shouting out. So I, I think that's John's way of giving us a heads up that this thing that he's about to tell us Jesus said was an important thing he wanted everybody to hear. We need to hear this. And this is what he says. If anyone thirsts, he must come to me and drink. I translated that, he must come to me and drink because in the Greek we have a third person Imperative. That doesn't exist in English. We can only do it in the second person. You do this. You can't say he do this. But in the Greek you can. So when, when he says this person who thirsts come and drink, it's not let him, it's not allowance, it's not a, 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 a statement of possibility, may he come and drink, and that's the way sometimes this is translated. No, it's a command. Come and drink. Anyone who thirsts. So uh, it, it's interesting to me that Jesus makes this as broad as it possibly could be. The only prerequisite for coming to Jesus and drinking is that you be thirsty. That's it. That's all he requires. I do think, though, that that is an important distinction. Sometimes I think we Christians who follow Christ... Uh, sometimes maybe waste too much time and effort trying to convince people that don't think they need Jesus that they need him. And really, the only people Jesus can do anything for is people that need him. He said it many ways. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. He said, I didn't come for uh, saints, I came for sinners. I didn't come for people who can see. I came for the blind. And here's the thing about the gospel. Until you are ready to recognize you need Jesus, the gospel is not for you. It can't do anything for you until you have come to the point and realization that there is something lacking that only God can provide. But anyone who has reached that point that's who the gospel is for. That's who we are trying to reach with the gospel message. And I'll tell you, Jesus invested most of his time in the people who knew they were thirsty. He didn't waste time wrangling with the rabbis. 
He entered into some conversations with them. He spoke truth to them. But the majority of his time and effort was devoted to those who were actually interested in receiving what he had come to give. I think today also God calls us to seek people who know they're thirsty and draw them into Christ. But here's what you have to do. If you are thirsty, you have to come to Jesus and drink. Let's keep reading verse 38. The one who believes in me, just as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. But he said this concerning the spirit which the ones who had believed in him were about to receive. For the spirit was not yet, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus says that we have to come to him if we're thirsty, and we have to believe in him. We have to put our faith in him. And I want to remind you, every time you read the word believe in the New Testament, that is the verbal form of the word faith. Like we use love as both a noun and a verb. You have love or you love someone. Well, in the Greek, you have faith or you faith someone. So when every time you read somebody believes in Jesus, it's they faith in Jesus. And I think it's important to understand that distinction because on the other side of the enlightenment, on the other side of the age of reason, we in our minds make a very sharp distinction between what we would call faith and what we would call belief. Uh, belief is like math. It's just facts and you say, okay, I agree that that's the way it is. Faith is a, a, an extension of trust. Uh, well, it's both of those things in the New Testament. So, uh, the one who believes in me, you, you must come to faith in me, trust in me. And this is what I will do to address your thirst. I will fulfill in you what Scripture promised. Rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. That word there in Greek is kind of a, a strange word. Uh, koileas. It comes from koilos, which means hollow. And most broadly, it addresses the cavity of the human body inside the ribcage where all of your internal organs are. So uh, this river of living water is flowing from the, the innermost region of who we are. From deep within, this living water will flow. And John demystifies this for us by explaining, when Jesus said this, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, if we will put our trust in him, recognize we have a need, come to him, he will supply it spectacularly, extravagantly, by actually placing the very Spirit of God within And from that residing of God's Holy Spirit in us will flow life. There are a couple of interpretation issues in these verses that uh, I'd like to address. One is some scholars uh, punctuate the Greek differently. And of course the original Greek had no punctuation. So we have to guess as to how best to punctuate it. But some will punctuate the sentence differently. So it doesn't quite read the way it does that these rivers of living waters are flowing from our innermost being if we believe in Jesus. But I don't think, and and the reason being uh, that we should not be the source of this living water. It shouldn't be coming from us. It should be coming from God alone. Uh, But I think 
that's, there's really not that problem in what John is saying. What he's saying is that when God's Spirit comes within us to reside, it is from His Spirit that flows out water. And it's not that we're the source of life for ourselves or anyone. It is a gift that Christ has given us by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So I don't see that there's a problem with just understanding that if we believe in Him, this is the promise. God will put His Spirit within us, deep within and from that presence of the Spirit of God will flow life. The other interpretation issue has to do with the translation here of this little phrase, for the Spirit was not yet. That's the way it reads in the Greek. That's the way I translated it. Most translations try to avoid confusion and say something like the Spirit had not yet been given. Uh, but that's really not the way it's worded. Uh, John actually said, for the Spirit was not yet. And of course, immediately that raises questions for us. What is he saying? That until Jesus has died on the cross, risen victorious over sin and death in the resurrection, and ascended in glory to the right hand of the Father to reign on high over all dominion and power and authority, uh, is he talking about that, that until that moment the Holy Spirit did not exist? Some people have tried to say that through the centuries. But uh, there's too much in the Bible that indicates that God's Spirit has been active from way before Jesus' earthly um, life. Uh, so I don't, I don't think at all that that's what John is trying to suggest, that the Spirit of God did not exist until Jesus had been glorified. But uh, notice what he's talking about. I think he's pointing to the event of Pentecost. There was that key moment after the resurrection of Christ. He said to his disciples, stay in Jerusalem until uh, I give you power from on high. And Jesus waited until Pentecost. I think it was about 10 days. And, uh, and he, he uh, poured out his spirit on those who had believed in him. And the spirit came into them in a way that had not been happening before. We see nothing in the Old Testament like Pentecost. In, in the 1,500 years of history recorded in the Old Testament scriptures, there is no event like Pentecost where God's spirit falls on people and uh, doesn't just do something for a moment, but initiates a life of communion with the believer that is never severed. The Spirit comes to seal the redemption that is promised in the gospel message. In that sense, it is that the Spirit was not yet. The Spirit was not yet operating in the context of the gospel proclamation that had been consummated at the cross and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. From that moment forward, what happened to the believers on Pentecost has accompanied the proclamation of the gospel to this day. People put their faith in Jesus in response to the gospel invitation and God responds by giving the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes in to seal an eternal redemption and begin an eternal process of transformation from death to life, from sinner to saint from broken to whole. And, and that's what he's saying, that this manner in which the Spirit operates, and in the Old Testament, the Spirit will fall on someone and then abandon him. King Saul is a great example of that. He even prophesied 
The Spirit fell on him. He prophesied. But we know in his later years, in his final days of his life, God abandoned him. And I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't continue to work in that manner in the lives of those who don't know him. God is free to interact with humankind any way he wants to. But this way of interacting with us in response to the gospel, the Spirit coming in as a permanent resident in the human soul, that was a new thing. That doesn't happen until the gospel is consummated. So again, we're not saying the Spirit didn't exist, but he was not doing this thing that he is now doing until after Jesus had been glorified. I have a question from these verses. Jesus made a simple offer to anyone who recognizes that they are thirsty. Believe in me and I will satisfy you through life from the Spirit of God. Why is admitting we are thirsty and coming to Jesus for satisfaction so difficult for most human beings? Let's keep reading verse 40. Therefore, from the crowd, some who were hearing these words began to say, Truly, this is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. But some were saying, No, the Christ is not coming from Galilee, is he? Did the scripture not say that the Christ is coming from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was division among the crowd because of him. Now some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. This clear, shouted call from Jesus, this announcement, if you're thirsty, come, believe in me, put your faith in me, and I will give you the gift of the Spirit, which will guarantee for you life flowing eternally. That simple invitation is met with a whole discussion among the crowd, and I'm getting a little tired of it. All chapter 7 of John goes back and forth like this. Jesus says something clear as day, and they all start arguing about it. Some say, this is truly the prophet. They're referencing something that Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In his farewell speeches to Israel, Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. You need to heed him. Well, ever since Moses died, the Israelites had been waiting for that prophet who would be like Moses. And they'd had a lot of prophets, but nobody they could say was on, the, on a par with the great prophet Moses. So they were still waiting for the prophet, capital P, the prophet. And there was a lot of confusion. Is the prophet the same person as the Christ? Are they two different people? And if they are, what's their relation to each other? Who's coming first? How do we figure all this out? Well, as it turns out, when we read the New Testament, it's very clear. Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was the Christ. He was both. But they, they're not sure yet. They're still arguing back and forth. Some say, this guy is the guy Moses was talking about. Others say, no, this is the Christ, the one all these prophets talk about, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, who will come to earth and establish the eternal kingdom of God, a descendant of David, who will sit on the throne of David forever. That's who he is. He is the Christ. And then others say, wait a minute, no, he can't be the Christ, he's from Galilee. And they say, doesn't scripture say that the Christ has to be a descendant of David and he has to be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem? Now notice John doesn't bother to clear this up for his readers. 
I think by the time he writes, the other three Gospels have been in circulation for a number of decades, and he knows it's common knowledge that Jesus was, in fact, a descendant of David, and Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem, just as the prophets foretold. But John doesn't bother to clear that up in his Gospel. I think because he, he wants us to recognize that this argumentation and fighting and quibbling over all the details and trying to figure out Jesus like it's some kind of a math or logic problem is not the fruitful approach to Jesus. That's not the way we find him. You know how we find Jesus? It starts with being thirsty. And then it goes to hearing Jesus say, are you thirsty? Let me take care of that. It's a lot simpler than we want to make it. And people fight and argue back and forth about this or that scripture, this or that argument from logic. And uh, the, the struggles and the, the wrestling goes on. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And it's going on today. There are Christian apologists who are wrestling at the highest levels with these questions and objections to faith in Jesus. And I'll tell you, we have Christians in the highest echelons of philosophy of religion departments, people like Alvin Plantinga, uh, and people who have actually done the depth of work and research to actually work through the reasonings and the argumentations and present cogent arguments for the Christian faith that live up to the highest standards. But you know what? In my experience, you never argue somebody into faith in Jesus. It's not a math problem. It's a hunger problem. And if you're not hungry, no amount of math is going to fix it for you. And I think that's how John approaches this. Yeah, they're all fighting. He's the prophet. He's the Christ. No, he can't be. And it's, it's interesting that even in the same chapter, back in verse 26, I think it was, they said the exact opposite. Aren't we supposed to not know where the Christ is from? They're even contradicting themselves. And John doesn't bother to clear any of that up. Just what he presents for us is the chaos that is the reality among those who are outside of faith. It's just chaos. We all have an opinion. We all have an argument. And everybody is shouting their opinions and interpretations and ideas. And it is a cacophonous mess and we can't make heads or tails of anything. If that's your approach to Christ, it's, you're in for a lot of frustration. If you think you're going to find this perfect argument that resolves the issue for everyone forever, uh, it's a pipe dream. Because the problem is not mental. It's a soul problem. Until you recognize thirst and come to Jesus for water. There's no other solution. And amid all this confusion and arguing, he's this great thing, he's not. Some just want to grab him and arrest him and get, get him killed. Again, God does not allow that to happen. No one lays hands on him. I have a question from these verses. Jesus' offer is met with a chaotic chorus of differing opinions. How can the chaos of human opinion rob us of what Jesus is offering? Let's continue in verse 45. Therefore the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, 
Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has man spoken in this way. So the Pharisees answered them, You've not been deceived as well, have you? No one from the rulers or from the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. When the officers who've been sent to arrest Jesus come back, they don't have Jesus with them. They show up empty-handed. So the question, I think, is normal. Why didn't you bring him? And I love their answer. Never has man spoken in this way. Now, these guys were likely Levites. And if they were serving the Sanhedrin, they were likely surrounded by the sharpest minds of the day and had, I'm, I'm no doubt, heard many of these rabbis teach on many an occasion. And being that close to this group of people, they had certainly heard the sharpest theological minds of their day many times before. But they say, you know, when we listen to Jesus, it's different. None of you have ever spoken like he speaks. Not only that, not, not, not just none of you, there's no human being who ever drew breath who has spoken like he speaks. Notice in that statement, they even lump Moses. There has never been a human being who spoke like this man speaks. They got it right. It's what John has been telling us from the beginning. Jesus is God, the message, come to us. And when Jesus spoke, it was God Almighty speaking. And these men, their souls understood it. This is not just some guy. You don't just walk up and arrest him. The Pharisees don't receive this word of testimony, this witness eyewitness account you would think they might say well you know maybe we should go listen to him ourselves and we should hear what this guy's saying I mean if even the guys we sent there's none of that oh good grief he's fooled you too even you guys I mean you guys are with us you have been exposed to the most brilliant minds of the age you are not simpletons you know the truth how in the world did you get deceived too hoodwinked bamboozled deceived by the charlatan here's the argument that they present for uh, them changing their opinion about Jesus. None of us has believed in him, have we? We're the experts and we haven't believed in him. And we know so much more than you do, so if we don't believe in him, then certainly you simpletons should follow our lead and assume that we know better than you. Have you heard people talk about the Christian faith like that today? People who think they're really, really smart. And they've got it licked. They've found this perfect argument. And they throw it out there on the internet and uh, there's snide little comments about God and they think, we're so enlightened, you fools. If only you would listen to us because we get it. And we don't believe in Jesus, so you shouldn't either. That kind of argument continues alive and well today. 
Notice how they talk about people who are bamboozled by Jesus. This crowd that does not know the law is cursed. They practically spit out a curse on these people. These simpletons are so easily deceived and fooled. They're so gullible because they haven't done the hard work that we've done. They don't know the law like we know it. If they did, there's no way they would believe in Jesus. They're cursed. One has to wonder how you can lead a people you despise. How effective is your leadership if you think the people you're leading are a bunch of idiots who don't deserve you? Sometimes that's the attitude from people in leadership. They're just so much better than the average uh, person on the street. I contrast that with Jesus who, being God Almighty, emptied himself of glory and took on the form of a servant. He didn't show up in Caesar's household. He showed up out in the backwoods of Galilee. He grabbed a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Now he had every reason to despise the people he led, but he didn't. He loved them. Notice sometimes these people, these experts that are so dismissive of the faith. Stop a moment and consider how much do they love me? How invested are they in my well-being? Do they care at all? Or do they just want me to resonate and repeat back to them the things they've said to make them feel bigger? Is that their only concern? That the world be a sounding board for them? Don't follow people like that. I have a question from these verses. The Sanhedrin responded to the report that Jesus spoke as no man has ever spoken with anger and dismissive disdain. How do people among the educated continue to do the same today? And why do they often do so with anger and dismissive disdain? What are people so angry at Jesus about? Let's finish. Verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus, the one who had come to him before, who was one of them, says to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it has first heard from him and known what he is doing, does it? They answered him and said, You aren't from Galilee as well, are you? Search and see that no prophet is raised from Galilee. <coughs> so Nicodemus, I, I, I picture him in the back of the Sanhedrin just kind of timidly raising a hand. Wait a minute, guys. You guys are calling him a deceiver. You're scheming to kill him. In the law of Moses, aren't we supposed to actually hear what he said and find out what he's doing before we do all that? You guys have secondhand reports. You haven't even gone down there to talk to him face to face like I have. He, he doesn't mention that. It might be the wrong time to say that. But Nicodemus has done that. He has gone and sat down face to face with Jesus. And Jesus has told him some stuff he needed to know. You will never see the kingdom of God unless you are born from above. God has to do a miracle in you. Or you will never see his kingdom. He knows this isn't some charlatan. 
Doesn't the law say we're not supposed to condemn people to death without at least finding out what they did, what they said? Notice that they don't even address his objection. So many times people completely deflect the truth and, and dis, uh, divert attention to other things because there isn't a good answer. First of all, they, they uh, appeal to the pride of Jerusalem as the center of the world. In Jewish thought, to this day, Jerusalem is the belly button of the world. Jerusalem is where it all happens. It is the center of the cosmos in Jewish thinking. So they're from the big, great city of Jerusalem, and we're talking about some guy from out in backwoods Galilee. This is where all the hicks are, where all the country folk hang out who don't bother to learn and come to learn at the feet of the greatest rabbis who all happen to be here in Jerusalem in this Sanhedrin. You aren't from Galilee too, are you? And there's kind of a subtle... Nicodemus, you got a good thing going here. You are at the top. You're, you're among the, the, the most elite group of people among Jewish life right now. You are a member of the Sanhedrin. You are in Jerusalem. Would you rather go to Galilee and walk dusty roads with this Jesus guy? Be a pariah? Be on the outs uh, and have all of us reject you as well? And they try to argue from Scripture, search and see that no prophet is raised from Galilee. That is not true. You know where Jonah was from? Gath Hefer, which was right outside Nazareth in Galilee. So there is a prophet, at least for sure one prophet, and Elijah might have been from there. There is at least one prophet from Galilee. Maybe they're saying that this prophet, capital P, that, uh, that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18, that there's nothing in Scripture that indicates he's going to be from Galilee. Well, that's true, but Moses didn't indicate he'd be from anywhere in particular to begin with. Moses himself was from Egypt. He was born in Egypt. Maybe where... Christ is from isn't that important although there is prophecy about Bethlehem and we know he was born there but th their argument is absolutely false but they're they're so dismissive of backwoods Galilee nothing good can come from this area I have a final question Nicodemus faced a choice between the prestige and comfort of the Sanhedrin and faith in Jesus. How do we face a similar choice in our own lives? Jesus was not secretive about what he came to do. He stood up and shouted it out publicly for all to hear. And he ensured that John left us a written record of this shouted invitation so that you and I today can hear it as well. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Put your faith in me. Let me bring to fruition in your life the promises of Scripture. 
Let me place within your soul, at the very core of your being, the very Holy Spirit of God. And from Him, let life everlasting flow out uninterrupted. Jesus knows we struggle to find satisfaction. That we spend our short lives chasing after this or that thing we think is going to fill it. He knows that we're surrounded by this chaotic chorus, this dissonant shouting voices, all yelling their instructions at us. He knows the confusion. And amid the confusion, his voice rings out loud and clear. Are you thirsty? Come to me. I got it. I'll take care of it. It's as simple as that. And from that comes all the depth and complexity that God can open up for us in what life is meant to be about. But the entry point is so easy a child can get it. You don't have to be an expert. My question to you today is will you admit your need? Will you admit your thirst? And will you come to Jesus for satisfaction in life? Please join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you know how desperately we need you, how empty we are without you. And thank you that you've come to offer yourself to us and to give us life. Lord, I pray for everyone here today, if there's anybody who does not yet know you, I pray you grant them the grace of not only hearing the gospel invitation, the good news, but of actually responding with a yes and receiving your Holy Spirit within. God, bring us life. Draw us to yourself, the source of all life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name, by your merits alone, that we pray. Amen.